The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the Star Quest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. And today we're discussing the fourth Doctor story, The Hand of Fear. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today on the panel are Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Eldrad must live. <laughs> and Father Cory Stika. Hi, Father Cory. Dom must live. <laughs> uh, that's true. So remember to like The Secrets of Doctor Who on Facebook at facebook.com slash secrets of Doctor Who. Retweet us on Twitter where we're at SQPN. And be sure to leave us comments wherever you find us. We love to talk to you. I want to tell you about another show on the network you are sure to enjoy called The Secrets of Technology. You can find that wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com slash technology. Also, stick around to the end of the show because we have some really good feedback on our recent episode on the second Doctor, Fury from the Deep. But first, uh, Jimmy, could you give us a recap of what happens in Hand of Fear? Although we don't know it, we open on a scene occurring 150 million years ago. The planet Castria is executing a criminal named Eldrad who destroyed barriers protecting the planet from solar winds. With the barriers down, Castria is turning into an icy wasteland, so they've put Eldrad on a spaceship that they're going to blow up when a key moment arrives, guaranteeing that Eldrad will be completely destroyed. But the execution goes wrong, and the ship blows up prematurely. 150 million years later, the Doctor and Sarah Jane Smith discover Eldrad's hand in a quarry in England. Sarah is injured in an explosion in the quarry and is taken to the hospital. Since she touched the hand, she has fallen under its mental influence. Other people also fall under its mental influence, and the mind-controlled Sarah Jane takes the hand to a nuclear power station where the hand uses the radiation to begin regenerating. This leads to a crisis in which the hand causes the power plant's core to go critical, but it absorbs the energy and regenerates itself into a strange crystalline woman. To keep her from causing harm on Earth, the Doctor takes Eldrad back to Castria, but in modern times, not 150 million years ago. On Castria, Eldrad is critically injured by a booby trap, and the Doctor and Sarah Jane must take her to a regeneration chamber, which turns her into her true form, a crystalline man. It turns out that the Castrians are all dead. With the barriers down and the planet turning into an icy wasteland, they chose not to return to living underground, so they let themselves die. And since they knew Eldrad might return and want to conquer the galaxy, they booby-trapped the planet and destroyed the race bank that would have allowed them to come back. Via pre-recorded video, the former Castrian king taunts Eldrad and hails him as the king of Castria and the king of nothing. The violent conqueror Eldrad wants the Doctor to take him off the planet, but the Doctor and Sarah cause him to fall into an abyss. Afterwards, Sarah is frustrated with the Doctor and is prepared to do a Tegan and threatens to leave the TARDIS. While she's out of the room, the Doctor receives a summons to Gallifrey and decides it's too dangerous to take her back there since he doesn't know what will happen. He thus leaves Sarah Jane on Earth. He believes he's leaving her on the same street as her home, 
But once she's back, Sarah concludes it likely isn't even the same city. The end. Very good. Uh, all right. So this is the uh, the farewell to Sarah Jane, uh, who has been with the Doctor for, what, uh, three seasons at this point? Something like uh, that, yeah. Uh, well, she was around for a season of John Pertwee and for uh, at least two seasons of Tom Baker. I forget if this is the third or fourth. I forget if this is the third or the fourth season of Tom Baker, but yeah, something like that. Yeah. But she's, I, I gather she's one of the most popular of all, uh, of all the companions. I mean, she, she was, was be- before New Who. Sarah yeah. Jane was considered the most popular. Yeah, I mean, of People of all of for, the companions, for, yeah, it, it sort of depends on when you came into the show. She's sort of among newer fans. She's the most popular of the ones they remembered, and they kind of idolized her. The older fans would might have thought of Jamie, mm-hmm. right? Right, and yeah, then the very late fans would have thought of Ace. Right, right, right. Because she, yeah, the last companion in, in Classic Who, and because uh, the one I always remembered not having watched Classic Who until until recently was uh, she was the only one I knew of was was Sarah Jane Smith, and so that's kind mm-hmm. of interesting to to kind of see that. Um, but yeah, I mean, she made a huge impact in her time, even among the even among the mid. Classic Who companions, though I actually I think Leela is better than Sarah Jane. I'd rather watch Leela than Sarah Jane. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Leela is interest interesting in her because as, as a character, she's a she's not an Earth woman from the twentieth century. Yeah. Also, it's more about personalities for me. Um, the many of the Doctor's female companions had a reputation of being quote unquote screamers, as they were called. They were basically damsels in distress who got to scream, and there wasn't necessarily too much more than that. Although there really was, but this was the the stereotype anyway. Um, But uh, Sarah Jane is more perky. She has a little more pepper in her personality than, say, Joe Grant did uh, or Carolyn did. So of the, I th- I think the the early third Doctor companions were what people were really thinking of that Sarah stood out against, and then Leela stood out even more, right? And and that's why I like Leela even more than I like Sarah Jane. But if you go back further into the black and white era, you have companions like Zoe, um, or Jamie, or. Um, other people who would who who had complex relationships with the doctor and would it, like in Zoe's case stand up to him and things like that. And Sarah Jane did more of that than Carolyn or Joe did. Right. And when you had the first and second doctor who were more you know, older men, mm-hmm. they were less the leading man sort of guy. And so the male, the younger male companions seemed to stand out a little bit more as action figures, whereas Tom Baker's more of an action figure. Right. Yeah, also the fact he's younger, even though they didn't ever explore it during this era, there was more chemistry of a, mm-hmm. of a kind of suppressed romantic nature between Sarah Jane and Tom Baker than had existed between John Pertwee and any of his companions or any previous doctor because they were all older. Mm. Was this the beginning of the whole Doctor is my boyfriend thoughts? Yes, but on a suppressed level. They yeah. didn't they didn't openly talk about it, but it was clear that to the fans that there was some kind of chemistry going on with these characters. Mm, interesting. 
There was very much fan fiction from that time that would have would have explored that, but nothing on screen, nothing canonical. Yeah. yeah. Right, right, right. Until New Who, when they canonized the off-screen romantic relationship between the fourth Doctor and Sarah. Mm-hmm. Right, in the uh, the school... School reunion. School reunion, yeah, yeah. Uh, where that was my first exposure to Sarah Jane, it, 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 which is funny enough, you know, given that I started with New Who. So we start this story, The Hand of Fear, uh, and there's a hand that plays a prominent role but it's kind of a funny thing to call it the hand of fear and i'm not sure it it, it kind of fits for the first half or the first couple episodes but yeah. not so much for the, the the whole story no the the first couple episodes are really a riff on the beast with five fingers which was a 1946 movie about a severed hand that came to life and did stuff yes that's right or uh cousin it from from the adams family <laughs> so uh so we have this world, uh, the, the the snowbound people uh, wearing uh, duvets, but apparently around themselves as uh, clothing. We don't get to see them, which they 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 hold back on showing us the what what the uh, Eldrads people look like, which I think is a, a nice dramatic mm-hmm. device. Uh, and uh, th- they don't they have- look like they're wearing those bulky crystal costumes under those robes, though. No, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> they. Uh, I, I kind of like this scene in the beginning. It's it's suitably uh, um, dour, dire and feels, you know, like you don't know really know exactly what's going on. But you can get a sense of, you know, whoever this Eldred person is, they must be really bad if you need to obliterate every particle of them uh, to make them, to make sure that they can't come back. And so that's kind of an interesting aspect of of that opening scene. One of the things that I like a lot when they get to Earth and they're in the quarry, it's like, okay, we're in a quarry again. And for once, they're not trying to pass it off as an alien planet. It, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a quarry. It's got workmen there. They're yep. about to do blasting. And they actually did a blast from the show uh, for the show. I wondered if this was stock footage and it wasn't. Oh, mm-hmm. they, they, they put a camera on the ground and blew up a cliffside. So you get this marvelous shot of yeah. all of this stuff. The cliff just disintegrates and falls oh, yeah. on the camera, which they then had to dig up. <laughs> but it's a really impressive shot, and I really like it. I was thinking it had to happen eventually. With all the quarries the TARDIS lands in, it had to land in one that explodes. <laughs> so well, and- <laughs> And, and Tom Baker, you know, the doctor even says a line about, you know, how can I know all the quarries? And then the last happens. Yeah, right, right, right. Uh, although the improbability of surviving a, a uh, getting buried by all that rubble with, with, yeah. with nary a scratch uh, a little bit. But uh, um, at least, you know, when Sarah Jean got buried, at least they gave her a hand. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's my last hand pun, so, so I won't do any more. Don't make promises you won't keep. <laughs> all, all future hand puns will be unintentional, uh, I'm sure. So um, we have this scene in the hospital. So the doctor and Sarah Janet cut her off to the hospital. She's unconscious, and her hand is gripping the severed hand, uh, which is like fossilized so hard they can't get it out of her grip. And... Uh, so in the emergency room, they have this funny ER doctor. Uh, I, mm-hmm. Kind of, kind of odd. He um, played he played Musa in I Claudius, the uh, the the Greek physician. Oh, okay, okay. I mean, I was thinking there must be like that actor must have some uh, 
I, I don't know, some notoriety or some like he, he like stereotype or typecast. Mm-hmm. I don't know. He just had this funny mannerism. Uh, he's played weird doctors before. Okay, <laughs> so he's uh he thinks that the that the, our doctor, the the fourth doctor, is an MD or medical doctor. Uh, and when the doctor says uh, he's from Gallifrey, the ER doc again thinks it's in Ireland, which is a recurring thing with people yeah. keep yeah. thinking yeah. Gallifrey's in Ireland. I guess it sounds it Irish. sounds it sounds Irish. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, she. Uh, meanwhile, you know, once the doc, the the doctor gets kind of patched up, he goes to see Sarah Jane, and she's got this again. Her they're saying her her hand and forearm are in contraction, like she's. It's almost like um, if the if they were running an electrical current through muscles, mm-hmm. and they mm-hmm. just are seized up, and yeah. that, that's kind of what the way to think about it. Um, they do manage to pry it out of her out of her hand, although. She holds it, onto the ring, and so it seems right. that she's conscious at some level. Well, on some level, and it does have a ring, and the ring mm-hmm. is going to be very important. We don't know. We don't know it at this point. But the first thing the ring lets the wearer do is blast. Well, it mind controls them, but then it also mm-hmm. blast. It lets them blast people, right, and stun or kill them. And then it. We're also later going to find out it's got Eldrad's DNA in it which is part of the regeneration process. Right. Yeah. And we have this fun scene where the doctor goes to the pathology lab. There's a, he, he gets them to get a electron microscope uh, so they can look at it. Um, I didn't realize electron microscopes would be common enough that a hospital might have one uh, in the mid seventies, but probably was or or eighties. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right, right, right. The time, the time is, is flexible. Um, and so, um, it turns out that the hand is silicon based, so we get this idea that you know instead of carbon based life form, it's a silicon based life form. And and the reason people speculate on that is because elements that are in the same column of the periodic table have similar mm. properties. That's why they use potassium chloride instead of sodium chloride as a salt substitute, because potassium and sodium are in the same column, so mm. they taste kind of the same. Oh. In the, in this case, carbon and silicon are in the same column on the periodic table, and so silicon has enough chemical properties like carbon that hypothetically you could build life around it. Although there are actually a bunch of problems with that, and even in this episode, the doc in this story, the doctor notes that silicon life is very rare. Mm, right. right. Uh, Star Trek did an episode where they had uh, a devil silicon in the dark. Based, devil yeah. in the dark. Yep, an excellent one. One of my favorites. Uh, and they also reveal at this point that the the hand was found in a 150 million year old rat rock stratum in the quarry. So, in other words, it had to have been buried 150 million years ago, which presents a problem mm-hmm. <laughs> to find a hand like that. But it's interesting that oh, it could just be a Silurian hand, but it's <laughs> right, not. Right. Yeah, it's it's interesting that the pathology doctor kind of accepts it pretty quickly. Like he's not as skeptical as some would be. And the same thing happens with the. Uh, the coming up the director of the nuclear power plant like they mm-hmm. accept these very strange alien things pretty quickly they uh they're not in as denial like you know which is kind of a cliche trope that you find a lot in science fiction the the person who just denies the reality of the of this the extremely strange thing in front of them well in the case of the nuclear power plant director um he's just had this person walk into an area where they should die from yeah, the radiation yeah. and they're fine 
and 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 weird stuff is happening in the plant. So he's got a little more justification for being open to these ideas. In the case of of the the pathology lab guy, I assume he's just open minded. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Um, so you mentioned the the, the radiation. Uh, they they realize that radiation causes the hand to get renewed or regenerate, and so they have so Sarah under the influence goes to this nuclear power plant, which is in the story is a research and development nuclear power plant. It's not a mm-hmm. active generating one, but they actually filmed at the Oldbury nuclear power plant in, in, uh, in England. Um, and uh, according to TARDIS Wikia, the permission to film there was obtained before the script was even completed because it just was so important that they filmed there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, they said, uh, they found the staff very accommodating on the the initial visit. They were very enthusiastic about the project. Um, the radiation of the power plant did provide some health and safety concerns. So they had Geiger counter checks being performed regularly and had to have radiological clearance certificates issued before any object could leave the premises. So uh, that must have been a fascinating shoot at the mm-hmm. power plant. Yeah, no and this, this was something that was a little bit common at the time um, on British television. They would occasionally need futuristic-looking industrial places to film. And so, like, there's also an episode of Blake 7 that was shot mm-hmm. in uh, in a nuclear power plant. Um, but I have in my notes, there's some, there's some really interesting shots of Sarah walking around in these in this big industrial spaces inside mm-hmm. the power plant that are not normally something you would see on a TV budget, a children's yeah. television budget for this time, but they look yeah. nice. Yes, yeah. It was it really added to it. I mean, you could tell there were certain sets that were on a sound stage and the, and because they were filming I almost feel like they filmed some on film and some on video, or maybe it was yeah. just the the, yeah. the the mixing. That's what was very common at the time. Yeah, the it, was, it was very much so. All, all the the studio stuff was was video was videotape, and anything outdoors or anything remote was on film. Right, right. Uh, so you could see the differences, um, but yeah, the sets were very nice. I I, I really I think it, it added a lot to the to the story. Um, yeah, well, I was I was just going to say the same thing. Sarah takes the um, hand in a box into a chamber that's like right outside the power generating core, and there's supposed to be enough radiation in this antechamber that it will kill a human uh, in fairly short order, but it doesn't. Instead, the hand starts absorbing it, and we have this moment where the hand comes alive in the box. Mm-hmm. And start skittering around like it's a crab or something. <laughs> and it's creepy and very well executed. I assume yeah. the way they did that is they had, um, they have, you know, someone's real hand is in a glove. Mm-hmm. And they've got the they've got a fake wrist and part of a forearm sticking up. But I assume the real wrist and forearm are hidden below as it starts to move around. Right. With like probably green screen, they probably green screened it somehow, um, which for the time you usually could see something. They did a really good job of that. I, I'm I'm suspecting there's no green screen in this. I'd have to go back and review the shots, but I suspect they like uh, used a false floor oh. and the person's mm-hmm. the box is set on a false floor and someone's real arm is sticking up through the floor into the glove. Oh, right. that's possible. Yeah, they, they, you, can, you can see a very clear point where Sarah Jane sets down the box and then the scene shifts. 
Okay. okay. You know, so there's there's a very clear transition there between her moving the box and then the box just sitting there on the floor. Right, right, right. Yeah, the nice the, the nice Tupperware box that she's get there. Um also everybody who falls under the mental control of this is getting uh, a getting orders in their head. Um and what it's interesting that voice shifts between male mm-hmm. and female depending on who is getting the orders. So Sarah hears a female voice. The power plant and uh, the the doctor from the pathology lab who also fall under its influence, they hear male voices. Um, and I think it may be the act. They're kind of whispering, so it's hard to tell. But I, it, um, I suspect it's the actor we're seeing on screen who's doing the mental voice. So I yeah. think it's Elizabeth Sladen doing the voice that Sarah Jane hears. Um, but these voices give them instructions and say things like Eldrad must live. And that's the catchphrase of all of all of the people who fall under its influence. They mm-hmm. all out loud say Eldrad must live and, and 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 which is a kind of dramatic statement coming out of nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I, I agree. Eldrad must live. Although speaking of uh, must living, the the Dr. Carter that's the uh the pathology lab scientist and the power plant uh, worker who both come out Driscoll. of the Driscoll. Yeah, they both die. Sarah survives, obviously, but they both die. Driscoll falls, uh, I mean, sorry, Carter falls to his death trying yeah, to stop I, the doctor. I love the way it happens. He's following the doctor to the core on, ostensibly to help, and then halfway there, he's like, Eldrad must live, and he swings a wrench at him as they're climbing up this big, you know, metal staircase, and he defenestrates himself. <laughs> From the staircase, he misses with the wrench and falls over the side. It's it was a big wrench. I mean, it would be that would be a very heavy wrench for real. It was very clearly foam the way he picked it up and moved around. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, the um, the, and then Driscoll. So we have this this dramatic scene where Driscoll, the power plant worker, carries the hand into the core, like just like this is the that opens the, the door, goes all the way, and this is where the fuel rods are. I mean, this is the really bad place. And the power plate director is convinced. Yeah, they, they don't have blue glow coming out of the door. There should be <laughs> blue glow from the Cherenkov radiation. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and uh, you know, the, the power plate director is like, this is the plant's going to explode. We have to evacuate. Um, he And, and then uh, he's convinced he's going to die because there's a scene where he mm-hmm. calls home to kind of yeah. say goodbye without saying it. Um, he's talking to his daughter and he's like, can, and he's trying to, be patient with his daughter who's telling him about stuff but then it's like could you put mommy on and then he's like oh i just wanted to let you know i'm at the uh i'm at the plant and uh no nothing's wrong and i just wanted to say goodbye and kiss the children for me (laughs) it's like saying goodbye and trying to cover up the fact he's he's this is the real goodbye in his mind (laughs) right right Uh, it's touching it's 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 quite moving it is. A, it's a, it's very affecting in the in the context of this uh, uh, action sci fi thing that they put yeah. that in there. He's also self sacrificing himself because he's ordered everyone else in the plant to safe locations. He's ordered everyone mm-hmm. else to evacuate, and he's staying here to deal with the situation. Right, and he he. Uh, so, so f- I think that the sequence is Driscoll takes the hand in the co- into the core where a nuclear reaction takes place. They expect it to explode. But it implodes, although the doctor keeps calling it an unexplosion. But essentially, mm-hmm. it means it implodes, right? Well, that was what I thought at first. But based on their description, I don't think they're 
I, I don't, I don't, I don't know how coherent this writing is because from the expression <laughs> "unexplosion," you would expect it to be an implosion. Yeah, but that doesn't seem to be. It just uh, there was a big radiation release, but it didn't explode, right? It, because Eldrad absorbed it, and so to, I think that's all they mean by unexplosion, because an implosion would have caused destruction, and we don't see any evidence of destruction having occurred. It was right. it was a pop, not a bang. <laughs> right. Basically. And I mean, it was, apart, nothing happened. Nothing happened. Yeah. All the radiation was absorbed and the reactor shut down. Apart from Driscoll being uh, vaporized. vaporized. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Uh, so this is, I think this is when the plant director calls in an airstrike, which would be a really bad idea, by the way. I mean, like if <laughs> oh. you have a nuclear pot, pro- <laughs> like blowing up and sending nuclear material flying everywhere into the atmosphere, that's well, a bad idea. Well, and blowing it up with tactical nukes, they're doubling <laughs> the nuclear explosion. Yeah, Yeah. uh, there's also a great scene in here where the doctor, um, you know, is is concerned about everything that's been going on. And Sarah has been right at the middle of it. And he decides to telepathically, you know, read her mind. And so he um, he goes to touch her forehead on both sides with his hands. And she says she starts to object and says, not again. That's not fair. And then he's got her under. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And 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 then, you know, we have some additional stuff. The hand, I notice, keeps switching back and forth between being colored black and silver, which is an effects or prop error. Mm hmm. But then they do decide, oh, also at the moment of the explosion or the unexplosion, the doctor come, you know, and Sarah have been running towards the core and the doctor suddenly turns around and grabs Sarah and forces her to the ground. So they both shelter because he he knows the explosion is coming Mm -hmm. and then it doesn't happen. And and Sarah Jane and the doctor are laying on the ground and Sarah, they're waking up and Sarah is like, are we dead? And the doctor says, no. Are you sure? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like here where the doctor's trying to explain what happens. And he says, you know, instead of going outwards and he moves his hands together, he says it went inwards and he moved his hands apart. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm looking at the transcript and it, it does say that there, um, the, the plant director's name is Watson. He says uh, that would have caused a nuclear explosion. And the doctor says it did, but fortunately it was absorbed. And he says fic- fission took place, but instead of the explosion going outwards, it went inwards. So it was yeah, but still an ex- – yeah, it's weird. I, I think it's – I just think it's incoherent. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, we call in the airstrike, but the airstrike gets absorbed and uh, – they, they just want an excuse for the RAF to use some of its stock footage. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Also, like I, I, I love how the director says that the strike is going to occur in 10 minutes. And I'm like, really? You just called the home office or whatever, and they approved a nuclear strike <laughs> on British <laughs> soil. In, and, it's, and it's so fast that they're going to have the plane scrambled and delivering the blast in 10 minutes? Did mm-hmm. they just like have plans, you know, ready to go for nuking a British power plant? 
Yeah. Give it alert five with the nukes on board. Well, <laughs> don't, don't you go. know? On the, don't don't you know on the console there? You know, for the control room, it's got order a sandwich and nuke the plant. I mean, it's just it's just <laughs> yeah. one of the buttons on the console. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, it's it's yeah. really really a safety. We're kidding, of course, but that yeah. would really be a, a bad safety feature at lunchtime. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, the uh, so the. After the non-explosion and the non-nuclear strike, the doctor and Sarah and Watson are in the uh, by the core, and the door melts. That was kind of fun watching the uh, the door to the to the core melt apart, so that um, Eldrad walks out, and he has this interesting conversation where Eldrad is saying, "No, no, I'm not the bad guy. I was betrayed after I tried to save Castria," uh, and so you, you, we're kind of left in this little you know questioning state so who was the bad guy is it the 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 castrians or is it eldrad maybe eldrad wasn't a bad guy well they're trying to generate doubt about that and Mm -hmm. eldrad is trying to come across as reasonable to the doctor um i mean it's it's pretty transparent to the viewer that this is our villain but they're muddying the waters and i like that that's good because villains don't see villains in the mirror and mm-hmm. and dictators think they're doing good for people, and Eldrad thinks I was doing good for people, and I was betrayed. So that's reasonable. I also really like the Eldrad costume, mm-hmm. and they hang a lantern on the fact that it's not Eldrad's true form because Eldrad like looks in a mirror and she says, "What a strange form! I guess this is could this be the form of the creatures that found me?" Mm-hmm. And in fact, we later learn it is. Um, she's appearing as this woman with. And and to give you a sense of what this costume is like, it's gray, but it's got these crystals all over it. Uh, they look like, and if if they're what they look like, that the costume or parts of it actually would have been pretty heavy because there's sort of a gray leotard that the mm-hmm. woman is wearing, but then on the leotard are things that look like polished magnets. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they look like polished magnetite. And um, so that would have actually been quite heavy, but it gives the costume a nice crystalline look while still giving her flexibility to move around with the leotards. And she's got this elongated head um, that projects up farther. It's again, it's meant to look crystalline, but um, but it projects up farther than a human's head normally would. So it creates an abnormal an abnormally long head which again mm-hmm. contributes to the alienness of this. It kind of reminded me a little bit, just a little bit of the Borg Queen in Star Trek. So Yeah, very similar. Yeah. Very similar. Yeah. At least the back of it does, yeah. On, only crystalline instead of bio biological mechanical. or mechanical. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. She she tells the doctor like like he, ha- he she demands that he help her because she's she apparently knows the time lords because she says time lords are pledged to uphold the laws of time and prevent alien aggression that threatens the indigenous population which is the first I've heard of this is is this, is this a, a thing that we've encountered before well they they are pledged to non intervention the unless it threatens the local population is kind of a new thing in this episode. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but the the idea they're pledged to non intervention has been around since since the war games, uh, because right. that's the charge against the doctor is he's been meddling in the affairs of other planets. Okay. Okay. And I, sort I, of I, prime directive almost. Yeah. yeah. I I want to go back though, um, because there is a nice bit where they're getting ready to go back to the power plant, 
which is when the doctor first meets Eldrad. Yep. Um, but the, they go back to the power plant after the attack, which has not damaged the power plant in any visible way, um, despite the fact it was hit allegedly with missiles. Mm-hmm. Um, and the missiles should have done physical damage, and e- and the nukes, when they went off, should have done physical damage, even if Eldrad then absorbed all their energy. But there's no damage at all, um, which is implausible. But when they all get back to the gate, the doctor tells Sarah Jane to stay here at the gate with w- Professor Watson, the director, and he's going to go in and see what's up in the power plant by himself. and. You know, Sarah initially starts to go with the doctor, but the doctor says to stay. And Professor Watson says, I think you better do is uh, I think you better do what he says this time. And he says this time, yeah. apparently <laughs> ha- having some kind of knowledge that she doesn't always obey. And and she says, you're probably right, but I'm not going to. And she goes running after yeah, oh, the yeah. doctor. <laughs> <laughs> And and Sarah Jane explains to the doctor, it's like, you know, I worry about you. And they have this little, I worry about each, I, 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 they each say they worry about the other and mm-hmm. they decide yep. they'll look out for each other. Yeah. Yeah. Also, when, when, after Eldrad notices that the doctor or identifies the doctor as a Time Lord, which she does by scanning his mind in an extremely painful way. Mm. Yeah. It really hurts him when she scans his mind. She's not sure if she can trust him, and he 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 crosses his heart. But because he has two hearts, yeah, he double crosses his hearts, and <laughs> yeah, and both. Tom Tom Baker <laughs> uses like a vertical stroke, a vertical stroke, and a big horizontal stroke. <laughs> yep. And and Tom Baker uses that that gesture on more than one occasion. Yeah, yeah, I've seen other doctors later. I think do it where it's like they do it with two hands, and yeah, that yeah, yep. that's funny. Uh, it does say in the uh, in the in the script that he says that she neutral. Uh, he asks the doctor asks Eldrad, "How did you prevent the missiles from exploding?" So you know, yeah, and then she says she absorbed them. Yeah, but it'd still be kinetic energy from them. Mm-hmm, You're right. Yeah, it's it's kind of an overlooked thing. Um, so the uh, we end our time with the power plant. Around this point, and so the fourth uh, episode's a four-part uh, story, and the fourth uh, part will be on on Castria. But um, I like how we end with the director, like he's back in this ruined power plant in the control room, and he's like realizes no one's going to believe any of this. Like I'm yeah. in so yeah. much trouble. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that was pretty good. Um, so the doctor is going to take uh, Eldrad in the TARDIS, and he, like you said, he refused to take her back in time to when she was first sent away. Um, because the, that you know, would undo the last 150 million years of, of Castrian history. Right, right. right. And he's, he doesn't want to mess with that. Um, and I, I get the sense that he kind of knows why, like that the, mm-hmm. if she went back, you know, the Castrians might ruin everything. Uh, so we're not going to do that. Yeah. Also, he's she's told him this lie about exactly what happened. Now, from her perspective, it's it's certain that she could believe that she was betrayed. Um, but and by the way, I like the fact that at this point the villain is a female. Um, mm-hmm. That's something you don't see too often, but we do see it here. But she's told um, the story that she's given is that the there was a war between her 
castrian species and an alien species. And it was the aliens, this is the lie, it was the aliens that caused the barriers protecting the planet from the solar winds to fail. Mm -hmm. Um, And she then says the castrian leaders were subverted by the alien leaders, and that's why they turned on her. But it was the leaders that turned on her, not the people. So she's portraying it as, I had the support of the Castrian people, but under alien, due to alien subversion, the leaders betrayed me, which is a complex and interesting story mm. and, you know, could almost be true. It just isn't. Right. right. So they, they do get to the TARDIS and we're, they're still in the, the that small wooden living room con- console room that they yep. that the I love that using. room. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the steampunk console room. It's got some, it's got some style. Uh, and when Eldrad tries to do that mental uh, uh, thing again with the doctor to you know, probe his mind, he says, oh, you can't do that in here. We're in a state of multidimensional flux, a temporal grace, because in the TARDIS, we don't exist. And so we can't hurt each other. That's new, isn't it? Yeah, well, it is. She, he, it also, he also says your weapons won't work in here. Mm-hmm. And this idea of the TARDIS being in a state of temporal grace is a concept that gets used occasionally, mm-hmm. but is also clearly untrue, um, at yeah. least at times, because um, in the fifth doctor's time, we've got Cybermen firing blasters in the control room. Right. In the doctor and, killing a Cyberman in the control room with, with the, a blaster. blaster. Yeah. And, and the, um, uh, they they later deal with this. They could have dealt with it different ways. They could have said that there's some element in the TARDIS that creates the temporal grace, and then it's on the blink sometimes, or the mm-hmm. doctor removed it or turned it off or something, but they don't do that. Um, later, they hang a lantern on it, and I'm, I, I, I'm forgetting exactly when they did this, whether it was the fifth doctor or the tenth doctor, and I'm forgetting... Did did I hear them do this in Big Finish or on screen? But at some point, someone... Oh, no, it may have been the 11th Doctor. It was, it was Matt Smith. the 11th Doctor. Yeah. He, he kind of... It were basically, it's just something he made up or, you know... Yeah, he he's... he uh, it, 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 Oh, it's in Let's Kill Hitler. Mm-hmm. It, it's after, uh, after the young uh, black Melody um, shoots a gun in the TARDIS control room, which is what forces them to land in 19 in the 1930 in 1930s berlin and as they're coming out of the tardis which is like spewing steam or something she she says but but you told me what we were in a state of temporal grace and my weapons wouldn't work and he says that was cl- that was a clever lie yeah <laughs> that's where i heard it before i knew that term temporal grace i had heard before but i, I didn't but the, remember where of course and there's other times they take it seriously where weapons don't work in the tardis because of this so i don't know if there's yeah. really I'm sure someday they'll they'll try to do something like, oh, yeah, well, there's really just a circuit that disables guns yeah. that's kind of on the fritz once in a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, they 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 end up getting to Castria, where, which is a frozen wasteland still 150 million years later. Uh, although I, it's surprised to see that dome still standing after 150 million years. I'm, uh, pretty much anything will, be, will have decayed, but uh, it's so made they, of they unobtainium. 
Yes, they built them to last. And then, of course, all, all the computer circuits work, too, you know. <laughs> yes, that's right. So Eldrad's about to uh, get, go into the elevator to go back down to the thing, and open, the door opens, and whiz, thunk, message for you, sir. <laughs> like, yeah. Without yeah. a Monty Python. <laughs> and, El- uh, she- Eldrad is shot in the chest with a spear that has a, crystal, has a transparent container in it filled with Windex. And, <laughs> and we're told that the Windex is actually an acid that she developed so she knows there's no antidote to the this acid and what will happen is it will cause the crystalline uh, structure of her body to shatter mm-hmm. so they've got to get her down to level 306 where she knows there's a regeneration chamber that she can that they can hopefully use to keep her alive so as they're going down you'll have to remind me cuz I, I, I this was a little confusing to me there there's a computer or somebody we, we it's probably a computer you know, yeah, reading yep. out, you know, heading to you know, level one ninety two. You know, alien intruders are there, and it presu- It seems like it's talking to King Rokon, but yes. but he's not. Right. Well, it's talking to King Rokon's body, oh, um, yeah. but and we only see Rokon, who was the original ruler one hundred and fifty million years ago. We only see him from behind. And he's like sitting in a chair listening to this computer and the computer is giving these readouts about we've detected two, one Castrian and two aliens. They're coming down. Um, Please give orders to, you know, to kill them, basically. And and this this figure is just sitting there silently and never gives Mm -hmm. the kill order. Oh, And it's because we're going to find out uh, Rokon is dead and this is just his corpse. Um. There's some pretty it's it the edge is taken off of it because they don't look human, but there's some pretty serious corpse creepiness here. I mean, <laughs> we've got King we've got King Rokon's dead body just sitting there, um, and eventually when they find it, it's going to get knocked on the ground and shattered. Um, also, the doctor, you know, Sarah Jane, as they're walking through the dead city underground, Sarah Jane's like, "Why don't we see any bodies?" If they're all dead. And mm-hmm. the doctor says, well, we're walking on them. They crumble to dust. So, of course, there has to be an abyss because, you know, all uh, creepy underground passages have an abyss. And uh, but no, once I, they get- I know. the doctor says it's an abyss. And Sarah Jane says, and it's a long way down, too. <laughs> she, she almost just fell in it. <laughs> yeah. So they do get to the regeneration chamber and... Uh, <laughs> they they think they've pulverized her because uh, this big stone falls down and there's dust left when it comes back up. There's a big cement slab and Sarah Jane is just horrified by that body was just pulverized and they, yeah. think, they yeah. think she's irretrievably gone. She's like an outline of like rock dust. Um, but it turns out that uh, Eldrad has regenerated as a dude. So the first... Uh, uh, cross gender regeneration, although yeah. not a time lord, uh, but uh, anticipates well, the twelfth and thirteenth. Of course, this is his original form. This is what he yeah. looked right. like before. So he's yeah. just being restored. And I like the line. There's a line in here where the doctor is noting that Eldrad has uh, has changed form, and and El- he now says, "Oh, doctor, as a time lord, you should be familiar with regeneration." Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> now, it it could be that this regeneration chamber and it could be they even got the concept of regeneration or built this technology based on knowledge they had from the time lords um right. like modwin's race in modwin mm-hmm. undead but the um 
uh, it, it the the way the line is written, if I'm not mistaken, it could mean my true form could mean species wise rather mm-hmm. than I look identical right to mm-hmm. what I looked like before. It's like I look like I'm a member of the same species because the the male form, while it's clearly male, it, it even has like a crystal beard. Yeah, mm-hmm. but it's the male form is distinctly different. It's much bulkier. And it does not have um, the extended cranium that the female form did. Instead, mm-hmm. he's just got like a hexagonal crystal sitting on the top of his head, yep. whereas it was much more extended in the case of the female form. And so, um, and and it's also male in appearance to humanize. And it could be that all um, that all Castrians would appear male to human eyes. That could also mm. be part of it. Um, so I don't know if we're meant to understand that he looks identical, uh, like the same individual member of this species. I think it's more like I, I, I look like I, we can harmonize these different elements by saying he, he looks like a member of his own species now, even if he looks different than what he originally did. Mm. And this is about when we find out that Eldrad was lying to the doctor about alien invaders. There were no alien invaders. He's the bad guy. He's the one who was the usurper, the would-be conqueror of his planet and of the galaxy and so on and so forth. And um, it tur- and like you said, it turns out the Castrian people destroyed themselves to prevent Eldrad from ever becoming king, which is an interesting uh, tactic. He also admits they thought they could destroy me, so I destroyed the barriers. Right. And in part, he wanted to conquer the galaxy and they didn't want to conquer the galaxy. And so that's that's part of what's that's part of the alleged betrayal is it's really they just didn't want to go along with his galactic domination plans. Mm. And then we have this recording of King Rokon kind of, you know, like you said, mocking him, you know, hail King Eldrad, King of uh, Castria, King of Nothing, which reminded me a lot of the Ozymandias, the uh, the, the mm-hmm. Keats poem. You know, oh, yeah. look upon my works in despair, like you mm-hmm. you are now King of Nothing, of just of waste. Uh, so I thought that was uh, a, a nice uh, remote literary reference, and people mm-hmm. might get it. Um, it. Initially, Eldrad is is annoyed that he can't take personal vengeance on Rokan. But he gets over it pretty quickly because there's a race bank that he can use to reconstitute the entire race and then have fun conquering the galaxy. But when he goes into the race bank, it's empty. And he's mm. like screaming about that. And the um, and and the um, King Rokon recording explains that, yeah, they decided not only to doom themselves, but to clean out the race bank so they couldn't be reconstituted. Right. They commit, you know. Race suicide. Race suicide, yeah, which is amazing. Dark. This is yeah. a pretty dark story in a bunch of ways. <laughs> yes. Uh, and so in order to stop Eldrad, the, the doctor and Sarah uh, conspire to use the doctor's scarf to trip Eldrad into the <laughs> abyss. Uh, uh, this is hilarious. I mean, if this thing is made out of is, is silicon-based, it's made out of stone. It's just going to rip through that scarf or rip it out of your hands. It's not going to trip over it. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a, it's a it's a Gallifreyan scarf. It could be. I mean, yeah. it's apparently something special. I um, know he got it on Earth. Yeah. Uh, well, well, the, uh, Mel, maybe maybe he had it in the TARDIS. Yeah. Now that I think of it, the well, doctor he, he had it in the TARDIS, but I think he, he he said he had gotten it from someone somewhere at some point. Yeah. Right. The the name of the real woman who made the TARDIS was Begonia Pope. And um, and the, she the had scarf. not 
who made the scarf. And I mean, in the real world, her yeah. name was Begonia Pope. And they had not told her how long to make it. So she just knitted all the yarn they had that they had given her. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, the doctor does have a great line when he, when they trip uh, Eldrad into the abyss. He says, the gravity of law has caught up with him. Yeah. <laughs> <Which is> a, <laughs> yeah. A nice turnaround. Um, and then we have this. Uh, Sarah gets mad at the doctor. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of and, out of nowhere. Yeah. And I kind of want to talk a little bit about that. Like. She storms off mad while he's getting a mental wave from Gallifrey. Uh, He's being recalled. Well, okay. so in this scene, the first thing that's happening is he's repairing something in the console in the TARDIS room, and Mm -hmm. she's handing him tools, and he's naming imaginary sci-fi tools, and she's just handing them to him, which is actually shows how long they've been traveling together, that she would know the names of all these different sci-fi tools. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And she's talking to him about her emotions, and he's focused on fixing the console. And she's getting madder and madder and says, like, out loud, you're not even listening to me. And she gets to the point, and this, incidentally, this um, part of the episode was significantly scripted or improvised by Tom Baker and Elizabeth Sladen. Um, They had kind of a draft of what they needed to have happen, but they thought that Baker and Sladen knew their characters so well that they could do they could do this goodbye scene better than Mm. than than the writers themselves could. And so they this actually this the exact dialogue they're using was come up with by Baker and Sladen. Um but she's getting more and more frustrated, and because he's not listening to her, she threatens to leave. And right. then he's like, fine, 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 and still not realizing what she's saying. And so she's like, well, I guess I'll go pack my things. And she gets up and goes out of the room and to pack her stuff, and that's when he gets the telepathic summons. Yep. Yeah, And I, I like it when she's talking about how she's tired of being mind-controlled and savaged by bug-eyed monsters, which you know is a poke at Sidney Newman. Because, of course, you, know, <laughs> you, you watch the you know, Adventure in Space and Time, the, the, the documentary or the, 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 the fictionalized documentary, however you want to put it, um, about how Doctor Who was created. That's one of the things he said he did not want bug-eyed monsters. And, of course, Daleks he saw as the, as the ultimate evolution of bug-eyed monsters <laughs> right so you know right. that it had to be a kind of a poke at him yeah that's true yeah um in in the specific uh dialogue in this scene when the doctor gets the telepathic message from gallifrey the summons he says to himself i can't take sarah to gallifrey i must get her back home and he, it, this is when she's still out of the room and that's logical because the last time he went to Gallifrey was at the end of the second doctor's time and they forced him to regenerate and, and, you know, abandoned his companions after blanking their memories of everything but their first adventure with him. And he's, that's what he's wanting to protect Sarah from. He doesn't mm-hmm. know what's going to happen to him. And he doesn't want her treated like uh, Zoe and Jamie were, or worse. Mm. Um, So he makes this decision on his own that he can't take her to Gallifrey. And then she comes back and he tells her, I can't take you to Gallifrey. I've been summoned. And she's like, oh, come on. I can't miss Gallifrey. Hey, you're not. And then she says, hey, you're not going to regenerate again, are you? 
because mm-hmm. that's what happened at the end of the second right. doctor's time when he mm-hmm. went to Gallifrey. So obviously he's told her the story of what happened at the end of war games. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he says, not this time, I don't know what's going to happen. And yeah. so that's his explanation. And then he wants to put her down in Croydon in South Croydon, which is part of London on Hillview road, which is, uh, where, um, where, you know, she lives and he, his final line to her is till we meet again, Sarah. And mm. that would be in school reunion. Yep. Right. Yeah. And there's, right. they, they kind of, they kind of retcon this in school reunion because she confronts the 10th doctor. You know, I thought you died. I, you know, you, you abandoned me and all these things. And he basically says, I couldn't take you to Gallifrey. I wasn't permitted. Humans were not permitted to go to Gallifrey. Right. You know, and so they, they kind of retconned it a little bit of the reason why the fourth doctor couldn't take her wasn't that he was afraid he was going to regenerate or that he was afraid for her life. It's he wasn't allowed to, which, of course, you know, this is the doctor. He, the Time Lord rules are kind of at his plaything, shall we say. He also, uses them as he needs to. Also, rule number one, the doctor lies. <laughs> That's, That's right. kind of a retcon, too. <laughs> <laughs> so. I was so I the way I was looking at this, I was first I was kind of annoyed, like, okay, so the Sarah's gonna leave because suddenly she gets mad at the doctor and wants to go. Like uh, that they they've done this with other companions, I think, later where yeah, they, Tegan, they, most notably. Yeah, suddenly yeah. I'm angry and annoyed and I'm and I'm leaving the TARDIS uh in this one episode. And whereas by adding in the whole thing about the, the summons to Gallifrey, it tempers that. Like it's it's not quite that same thing. It is an external force. The doctor doesn't really actually want her to go, and she doesn't really want to go. She's trying to get his attention, I think. Yeah. And so, so I kind of like the fact that they they walk that back a little, and mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. not just oh, suddenly Sarah's mad and needs to go, like it, because it wasn't a sudden departure for Elizabeth Sladen. She said at the end of the this was like the second story of the of the fourteenth season. So she had said at the end of the thirteenth season. She wanted to leave after the, mm-hmm. you know, right. at some point in the next season. And so this was planned. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad they did it the way they did. Well, I was too. I was going to say, as a comedy stinger, she gets out and there's a golden retriever sitting on the sidewalk and she's in a residential neighborhood, but she realizes it's not Hillview Road. And then she <laughs> says, it's probably not even South Croydon. And in, <laughs> in school reunion, she's going to confirm it was not South Croydon, it was Aberdeen. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> is Scotland is Everton Scotland? Yes. yes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't even in England. Oh. Well, and, and it, according to the the uh, the subtitles, she was whistling "Daddy wouldn't buy me a bow wow" as yes. she's walking away. Uh huh. <laughs> oh. And yeah. and and by, by the way, that's that was a very tolerant dog as she's you know tapping it with the the tennis racket a dog's just gonna sit in there <laughs> yeah she and and there would be a a revival attempt prior to the i forget the exact year but it was like in the 80s it was going to be called mm-hmm. canine and company and it was about sarah jane and canine now yep. canine was introduced in leela's time so the way this works is that we this is the end of elizabeth sladen in in the hand of fear then we go to Gallifrey for a single story with no companion, and then we pick up with Leela in the face of evil. Yep. And that's when Canine gets introduced. And so they made an, a pilot for an attempted mm-hmm. spinoff series that starred Sarah Jane Smith on Earth with Canine. 
And so like the doctor came back and gave her a canine and they were going to have adventures together. They made the pilot. The pilot exists and you can watch it, but it yep. didn't end up going to series. And it was, it was kind of a Christmas special, too, because I remember uh, our PBS station in North Dakota showed it at Christmas time once in a while. And I, I seem to recall, I mean, it's been a long time since I've seen it, but something like she mentions how the doctor just left canine on her doorstep. Basically, he didn't even say anything to her. He just yeah. left left Keon on her doorstep and flew off. Yeah. Right. Also, I've got down to, in my notes to where uh, I have about the companion lengths. And so it depends who's the longest serving companion in Classic Who and in New Who. Depends mm -hmm. on how you measure it. Um, in seasons, uh, Elizabeth Sladen, Sarah Jane Smith, is the longest. She served mm. for more than three seasons. But Tegan is the longest if you measure in years. She served mm. just under three years. And Jamie is the longest in number of episodes. Mm. So it depends right. on, on how you measure who's the longest serving companion. Also, uh, Sarah didn't end up missing Gallifrey because for the 20th anniversary, we have the five doctors and she was That's transported right. to Gallifrey to be the third doctor's companion. Yep. Oh, and with K9 was there too. So that's where she meets K9, right? Uh well, she may have met K9 in the Five Doctors, but that's not that's unrelated that's not she to gets the him. that's yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um okay. Uh interesting. So, uh so that does it for this story before we move on to feedback. Any final notes on the Hand of Fear, mm. Father Corey? Nothing. Um there's one scene where uh the fourth, the doctor has to carry Eldrad, who's the female form of Eldrad. Yeah. And it, I, I wrote down, it's a good thing Tom Baker did construction before he was the doctor. Now, yeah. now because it, it looked like it was the actual actress. It wasn't like a dummy. It did. Yeah, it I mean, looked like the actual actress. I was it, looking it looked, for a cut was, to see if it could be a dummy, and I didn't see yeah, one. Yeah, because I, well, I was looking to, you know, like facial features and everything. Either they did a really good job on that dummy, or it was the actual actress. And it was moving too pliably, even as she was supposed to be completely frozen. Mm -hmm. To be uh to be a dummy, so he actually picked up the actual actress, put her on her, his back, carried her into the 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 room, and that's why I said, you know, it's a good thing he did construction was actually fairly strong, at least would have been because he had worked his construction before he was picked up as the doctor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He carried her pretty readily. She must have been pretty light too. Uh, how about you, Jimmy? Any final thoughts? Eldred must live. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So our feedback this time comes from our last uh, episode where we talked about Fury from the Deep, the second Doctor story. And it was from R.O. on YouTube who writes, The surviving clip of Quill and Oak on the Lost in Time DVD always sparked my curiosity when I was younger. Truly one of the most disturbing memories I have of the show. An engaging story with a really great score. This is the one I'm holding out the biggest hope for turning up one day. Uh, and uh, I think uh, R.O. is referring to the fact that, as, as we mentioned, Fury from the Deep doesn't exist as a, uh, you know, like a lot of Second Doctor stories, doesn't exist on tape, except for mm -hmm. this one clip that they have. Yeah, left. where you have yeah. Quill and Oak, who are two, like, maintenance men at the sea gas plant, and they're in front of a woman, and they have their mouths open, and they look like they're silently screaming. Mm -hmm. And it's very frightening and intimidating. We used a clip of the character Quill in the episode arc, episode mm -hmm. art for that mm -hmm. episode. 
And so um, it's a it's a very striking visual image. It makes for a very striking scene. What they're actually doing is exhaling the toxic gas that the mm. seaweed makes to overcome the woman mm. who is Professor What's His Name's wife. Do you guys have a uh, an episode or story that you're holding out hope for recovery someday? You know, in some lost Kenyan television station that <laughs> from the, with BBC reels in it. Father, you, um, I. I can't really think of anything off the top of my head. Um, there's, yeah. there's a lot of them. I'd, you know, there's, um, now is the gunslinger, is that one that's missing? No, gunslingers exists. I've seen it. Okay. 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 That's a first doctor episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's wild West. So I didn't know if that one was available. Probably, uh, the, the one that's missing, we talked about recently where there's the one missing episode that they had to reanimate. Um, web of fear. Web of fear. Hmm. Dalek's that was master. the introduction. That was the introduction. Sorry, introduction of the the brigadier. brigadier. Yeah. Yeah. Dalek's master plan. I want the mm. big twelve parter. Mm. <laughs> I kind of uh, wish we had Marco Polo, uh, mm-hmm. the first yeah. Doctor story, the, uh, which, when they had a budget and all those costumes because the clips look fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we don't even have the audio of that, do we? I don't. Think yeah, we, we do. do. We have the audio mm-hmm. of everything. Oh, okay. We, I don't think we actually discussed it. We need to go back and talk about that one then, because uh, I think at the time that that we were in that rotation, we weren't yet talking about just audio versions. So uh, we need to make a note to go back and talk about Marco Polo then, uh, because that would be worthwhile. Awesome. Well, thank you, Aro, for that feedback. We uh, really do appreciate that. Uh, we want to take a moment now to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Doctor Who, including Helen G., David H., Sarah M., Greg T., and Margaret B., their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue The Secrets of Doctor Who and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. This is Dom Bettinelli, CEO of StarQuest. I need to ask for your help. But first, I want to thank you for listening to StarQuest and supporting our mission of exploring the intersection of faith and pop culture. In order to continue that mission and create more new shows, we need to bring on more audio editors, video editors, and production equipment. If you value this show, we need to hear from you now. If you're not yet one of our monthly patrons, please become one. And if you're already a patron, please consider increasing your monthly donation. There are many special patron benefits we'd like to give you, and you can learn about them by going to sqpn.com slash give and clicking become a patron. Please go to sqpn.com slash give today. And we'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edited this episode. We'd love to hear what you think of the fourth Doctor story, The Hand of Fear. You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com or the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page, or send an email to Who at sqpn.com or visit the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord. And by the way, I wanted to mention there at the end of this episode, um, after Eldrad has fallen into the abyss, Sarah asks the Doctor do you think Eldrad is dead? And the doctor says, oh, I doubt it. He's very tough, probably very hard to kill. That's an obvious setup for a return of Eldrad that they could use in the future. And perhaps in the new um, era of of Doctor Who that's coming, um, we may we might have Eldrad return because the new showrunner, Russell T. Davies, is a big fan of classic who and is bringing back other things so we might get a return of eldrad one day very good interesting so we'll be back next time 
when we'll be discussing the 12th Doctor story called Flatline. Until then, Father Corey Stika, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Doctor Who. Thank you, Dom. Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Eldred must die. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the secrets of Doctor Who on StarQuest. Remember, no, no, Eldred must live. StarQuest wants to hear from you. We're conducting a survey of our audience. That's you, to help us in our planning for the future. Please take a moment and visit sqpn.com survey. We'll be selecting two participants to receive an Amazon gift card as an expression of our thanks. So visit sqpn.com survey today.